Good afternoon, everyone. Um, you know, it's been an eventful week for our country, um, especially with uh, what's happened this week and Monday, the incident at the Boston Marathon. And as I reflected on that, it just really forced me to just examine myself. And just, I mean, just it also rung true to the central principle that all of us are looking for freedom. We're, we're, we're longing for it, where we want it so bad and so desperately. And we all have our different visions of what freedom looks like for our lives. And it, and it just, it drives us. And I know that when we have incidents like this occur, it's both bitter and sweet. It's... um. Perhaps it's, you know, we, we look at it and we're like, well, God, we're thankful for our, for our, you know, that you've created the sphere of government in the sense that Romans tells us that, the, the, you know, a government entity was created by God and it's there to, uh, to reward, the, uh, reward the good and punish the evil. And we know that God is a just God and we're, we're, we're thankful for, for justice. And at the same time, it's really bitter because we don't want to see any of the wicked perish because we know the heart of God there. And when we think about it, for those of you that have ever been to a funeral, have ever overseen a, a, a funeral, things just manifest and everything becomes more clear for us as, as people. We examine our lives and, and we're thankful that if the person that passed away is a, is a believer, we're, we're, we praise God for that, that you know what, we know that they're going to be with Christ in eternity. We know that they were suffering here, but now they're, they've been set free from that and, and, and we bank all our hope in that. But for those of us that have ever been to a funeral where the person that passed away was not a believer, it's a different fate. And we know that those that are apart from Christ in Revelation tells us that they are thrown into the eternal lake of fire. I don't think there's anything to celebrate there. And I just wanted to read Ezekiel chapter 18. It's It's not our passage today, but for God's heart, for even the wicked. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, not rather that he should turn away, that he should turn from his way and live. It's a reminder to us today that we're all looking for freedom. And the central truth that's going to be communicated today, that that freedom can only be found in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So with that, if uh, you go to the, the Gospel of John with me, we're going to look at the eighth chapter. Very uh, well-known passage here. John chapter 8. Uh, verse 30 to 38. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in, believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. 
the Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of the Lord. Before we dive into this passage, we have to really understand what is the purpose of John writing this gospel. And we don't have to look any further than the 20th chapter. There's a very specific reason why John wrote this gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, towards the end of the gospel, John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but there are But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's a central purpose of why he's writing this. So we ask, well, who is John writing to? And it's so neat that the gospel writers are writing to to different audiences. John's primary primary audience is is those that that are Jews as well as proselytes. So Gentiles that have converted to to Judaism. And the beautiful thing about the Gospel of John is that it's going to answer the question, not who is Jesus, but it's going to answer the question, who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? And if you look all throughout John's Gospel, you're going to see that John has the answer. He goes, I know who the Christ is. I know who the Messiah is. I know who the Son of God is. It's Jesus. And this is so central for us to understand because this, this makes sense. It's, it's an, it, you look at the different references in John, and, um, as well as like illust, you know, illustrations to the Old Testament references and so forth. That's his primary target audience. And really, it's evangelistic in its content, in its thrust, that John is, is longing for this audience of people to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And all throughout the pages of John, he's going to show how, how, how and why that is. And it makes sense because this, this audience with the mindset understood. They, I mean, they were looking for the Christ. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Son of God. They knew, they knew the prophecies. They were simply needing to be shown how. And we know here we look at Jesus, and we, one of the most intriguing things about Jesus is all the different people he, he encountered. You have to love these encounters. I mean, I'm moved, challenged, and blessed by all these different encounters, whether it was the rich young ruler, whether it was Zacchaeus, whether it was his disciples, whether it was the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the government officials, whether it was a king. I mean, Jesus encountered all these different types of people. And all throughout the gospel, we see Jesus teaching and performing many great miracles, and people come to believe. But we also see that many of the people that believed are very, very fickle. And we see that here in John 8, starting in verse 30. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And in 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And it's very interesting because what John is saying of the people that believed in him, I mean, some of these descriptions are, I mean, are pretty scary. If you read on in John 8, these people that believed in him, he's going to say that your father is the devil. He's going to also tell them that, you know what? Those that believe in him, you are all slaves to sin. It should show us a couple things. One, that among all the crowds that Jesus ministered to, there are those that, that genuinely had faith and believed. But there were also people that believed, 
but really didn't have faith in the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Isn't that not true today? It's like we move back and forth of our worship. We, we see Jesus, and we see him work in his splendor and majesty. Like he, he performs these miracles, and everyone's, ooh, wow. But then as soon as he says something difficult or something that doesn't line up with their paradigms and their worldviews, they're like, lynch him, kill him. People don't change much. It was the same today as it, is, as it was yesterday. And we see that in John's gospel. That's one of the things that John wants to communicate, that people are fickle. Look at John chapter 2, 23 to 25. It's not the, this is one of the first times he speaks of this issue. He's, John writes, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. A few chapters later, John chapter 6, verse 66, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, and this is uh, right after the teaching that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and he gets a very, a very hard teaching, the scripture says. And this is what happens in John six sixty six. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He's talking of fickle people. And this is so important because one of the central things that John wants to communicate to his audience is this, is yes, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, and this is what genuine saving faith looks like, is what he's going to communicate here in John chapter 8. He's going to give us a picture of this is what, this is what real faith in, in the Christ, the Son of God, looks like. It's a descriptor of faith. And it's what separates the fickle faith from the true faith. 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Among this audience, this mindset that we're free because we're literal descendants of Abraham. It's in our lineage. And they couldn't have been speaking of political freedom, right? Because we know that at this point, the, I mean, the Jewish people were always enslaved by some country, some power, whether it was Egypt, whether it was Babylon, whether it was Assyria, and hence in this context, the, the empire of Rome. But they were speaking of their internal status, their spiritual status, that we are genuine sons of Abraham. We're not slaves. We're free. Is that not the mindset today? Even the mindset some of us have in here. And we're not slaves. We're not slaves to anything. We're free. I'm free to, make, free to make my own choices. I'm not enslaved by anything. Don't call me a slave. But yet Jesus paints this picture that anyone and everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And I know I've taught on this before, but I just wanted to give it just to, uh, I guess, regurgitate this as, a, as, as more of a primer, but one of the central teachings that has helped me understand this, this whole enslavement of sin, is this concept of functional gods and functional saviors. Not, in, not invented by, by, by me at all, the teaching, but, I mean, just through reading uh, men like Martin Luther or John Calvin uh, definitely helped give uh, insight into this. 
wanted to read to you a quote from uh, Martin Luther. He writes this. You'll never break commandments 2 through 10 unless you've broken commandment 1. An idol is anything we look to for acceptance, significance, joy, justification. We only sin when we're first worshiping something or someone else. We are, by nature, idol worshipers. And it was John Calvin that said the famous quote that the heart is an idol-making factory, just pumping out idols. When we look at functional gods, this is so easy for us to understand. Because I think so often in the churches, what we promote is, is a doctrine of, like, mechanical change. Like, if you just do these things, all right, and if you, you know, go to enough Bible studies, and if you give enough, and if you pray enough, and you, print, you repent enough, and, and you do, 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 then you'll change. Whereas those are just, it's just a teaching of mechanical change. And what Jesus is always after is this concept of organic change, all right, changing from the heart, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything comes from the heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, even in the Old Testament, it's talking about the inner seat of man. and It's where all the thoughts, uh, emotions, and will exist. And it's, out of, it's that heart that needs a change. And mere things to do are never going to change a person. In fact, it's going to make us resent and hate God. Because if you throw religion on a heart that doesn't want it, that's all it's going to do. It's going to oppress. So functional gods. We have to go back to the Garden of Eden and understand original sin and the fact that this original sin was idolatry. Paul explains Romans 1.25 that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You may be thinking, how, how is this idolatry? I don't see them bowing down or praying to an idol. But you and I fail to understand what worship is. See, both you and I and every person in this room, you and I worship whatever it is that we, that we deem most essential for life and, and happiness. So think about that. What are the things that you hold dear in your life? That if, if they were taken away, it would, it would, it would change your emotion. It's a thing you worship. For Adam and Eve, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It, the fruit was so important to them that they were willing to disobey God to get it. For us, it may be money, popularity, approval of others, a good marriage, healthy family. Maybe it's achieving some status at, at work or, or experiencing some type of sensual pleasure. When something becomes so important to you that it drives your behavior and commands your emotions, guess what? You're worshiping it. You're willing to say no to God to get it. The Hebrew word for glory literally means weight. So to give something glory in your life or to worship it is to give it so much weight that you couldn't imagine doing life without it. That's what it means when you give glory to something. An idol can be almost anything, even the good gifts of God. Look at, look at the different worldviews that, that we have in existence today. And one of the common things you'll see is that these worldviews will take things that are good that God has made, but they'll make them the greatest thing. In the Confucian worldview, for example, right, family. Family is a good thing, amen? God made the family. But in the Confucian worldview, family becomes the greatest thing. That's, that's what we do. It's our natural 
heart and tendency to make the created things the thing, to worship the created thing over our creator. So these things, these good things that God has blessed us with, they become idols when we assign them that God-type weight. And ultimately, idolatry is behind all of our sin. We place a greater weight on something other than God. Whatever those things are that we feel like we can't live without and that, are, uh, you know, that guides our behaviors, they're functional gods to us. We bow down and we worship them. Hence, it's easy for, for us to see what Jesus meant. Everyone that sins is a slave to sin. All people are worshipers as well. It's an interesting thing. All people are worshipers because all people were meant to worship. But what the fall has done is just distorted that. We find we give glory to the wrong things. But we were made to worship. Looking at functional saviors now. That was functional gods. And this is another way we can be enslaved by our sin is when things become functional saviors in our lives. When Adam and Eve's eyes were open after eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did they become aware of? Their nakedness. They were naked before eating the fruit. And now after eating the fruit, they were aware that they were naked. So what happened? Some of our early church fathers, Gregory and Athanasius, they explained that prior to their sin, Adam and Eve had been clothed in the love and acceptance of God so their nakedness did not bother them. Now having stripped themselves of God's love and acceptance, they were left with a sense of exposure, fear, guilt, and shame. So what do they do? The same thing you and I do. They covered themselves. What does sin do? It shows us our nakedness. And then we look to things. Well, we're naked. I mean, we're not perfect. We're, not, we're very flawed. And what do we do? We begin to cover up our nakedness. We look for things to cover up our nakedness so that people won't see it. So people won't see our true selves because we don't want them to. Are you beginning to get this picture of enslavement to sin? Adam and Eve did the same thing. Their clothes made them feel more secure. And all of mankind has been on this quest ever since. We try to cover the shame of our nakedness by establishing our worthiness in some type, in some form or manner. We find something that sets us apart from others. Hey, we need to be smarter. We need to go to a certain kind of a school. We need to marry a certain kind of spouse. We're a good parent. We're more faithful in our religion than other people are. We give more. We study more. We read more. And it's our natural inclination in which we're looking for these things, these functional saviors in which we can set apart ourselves from other people because we're looking, we're, we're longing for worthiness. And we'll just use about anything. We'll use anything to establish our worth. And people who aren't religious, they do this just as much as religious people. Atheists feel like they're fair-minded and good citizens. What about Hollywood stars? 
right? They, they want to make sure they're, they're, they're doing social justice. They want to make sure they have a good, you know, reputation. I'm not saying that all Hollywood stars are not believers. I'm just saying that we're all, we're all trying to do something. Um, you've heard of a show called uh, The Sopranos, and the main character in that is Tony Soprano, but he says something uh, profound. He says, I may kill lots of people, but I'm a good son. You see that? We're looking, we're looking for like something to establish our worthiness, to cover up our shame and our nakedness. You know, one of the, one of the good illustrations I've heard of this is that it's all like all of us here, we're on this big episode of survival. We're, we're on this island, right? And all of us are just trying to find and establish our worthiness so that we can stay on the island. That's what it's like. So the things that we use to establish our worthiness can be called functional saviors. Does that bring more light to what Jesus is saying? That everyone that sins is a slave to sin. But you've got to be encouraged. We have to be encouraged by this next verse. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. This is John's gospel. We know that uh, in, a, in, this, in this time of history, all right, the hearers of his day had a, had a paradigm for slavery. And yeah, slaves could be grafted in, into the family. They could, they, you know, they could be counted as the family. But at the same time, because you were a slave, you could be sold at any time. You were property. You could be given at any time. There was no security for you as a slave in a household. But remember that John's purpose is trying to communicate that, that the Christ, the Messiah, the genuine one and only Son of God is Jesus. And it's this Son who remains forever. And as you read the Gospel of John, you're going to see this is why John is communicating that in in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Jesus Christ is the perfect manifestation of God himself. That if you want to see God, look at the Word. That Word is Jesus Christ. And this is the Son of God. And it's almost like he's just setting us up, that it's through this Son that you have freedom, and you no longer need to be a slave to sin. Amen? That's why he emphasizes, so if the son, the the son that remains forever, if he sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Here it gets a little more thick. Don't you love that Jesus just lays it on thick? I mean, you know, he doesn't, doesn't beat around the bush. He says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. So he's acknowledging, I know you guys are physical descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. And it's very ironic, right, because later on he explains that if you were really children of Abraham, you would see me for who I am. But yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. When you look at that phrase, it's, it sends chill, chills down my spine because what it literally means is that Christ's words, our hearts have become so hardened that his word has no room for operation in our life. There's no room for it to work in your life. 
And this is where we're coming back to the central teaching that Jesus is talking about, genuine saving faith. And some of you have heard of an author by the name, a pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's not that we agree with everything that Dietrich Bonhoeffer preaches. He, was, he taught neo-Orthodox theology. But one of the things that, that we do embrace is his concept on cheap grace. That what we do is we take this great love that God has lavished on us. And what we've done is we just, just spit on it by just devaluing the, the great cost that Jesus had to pay. Because as people, we just want the benefits of salvation, but we don't want Jesus Christ himself. And I think the irony here is, is that freedom, what Jesus is talking about, comes through genuine surrender. The, chan- the channel in which freedom comes is through the channel of surrender. But so often, we just want freedom without surrendering. Like, Jesus, will take your benefits. We just don't want you. We don't want you to tell. I mean, you could tell me what to do on Sunday. You could tell me to be, to be at church on time. But Monday through Friday, that's mine. That's not, that's not surrender. And you're never going to experience freedom if that's your mindset. Because guess what? You've just proved that the word of God has no room to operate in your life. So are you free? Because when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And you and I desperately need this. Even though this was written to a non-believing audience to prove that Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah, you and I desperately need this today. Because you know what? You and I, we still, even though, even though many of us here may be saved, we still battle with the flesh. And every day we have to wake up and we have to ask ourselves, what lies am I believing and what promise do I need to cling to? You think about your life, think about, think about every one of us is insecure in some manner. I don't care who you are. Every person in this room is insecure. It just manifests itself differently. And have you ever wondered, have you ever looked at your, your life as a kid and you saw some of your insecurities and then they're still playing out today and you're like, why did I react that way? Why am I so trying to win this person's approval today? The same things that were driving me as a kid, why are they still in existence today? because we're still fleshing out this whole concept of functional gods and functional saviors. You don't ever outgrow this teaching of the truth setting you free. And so many of us have not surrendered. I can tell you that anyone that has come to know the Lord, even though we've come to know the Lord in many different ways, in many different circumstances, we all share one common thing in all of our stories, and it's this, that all of us, for, those, for all of us who have come to, Lord, to the Lord Jesus and received salvation, all of us have come to the end of ourselves. We've come to the end of ourselves, and we, we've, we've seen how beautiful and glorious Jesus really is. We've, we've really seen the condition of the sinfulness of our own hearts. And we see that it was this sin, all right, that put Jesus on the cross. And I tell you what, this central teaching of the gospel you never outgrow it. And when we look at John's gospel, all right, the thing that, that drives Jesus, I mean, to the cross is love. One of the most famous passages in the book of John, John 3.16, we could all recite it together, but those first few words are profound. For God so loved the world. 
The, wor- the word for world there is cosmos. And in the Bible, it's also used of the world, like do not love the world in 1 John or the things of this world. It's like when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about the system that has been set up to oppose the things of God. All right, there's, there's two kingdoms, right? So what is, what is John communicating through Jesus and, and, and the Father, the love, the, the love that the Father lavishes on the world? For God so loved the world, the world that hates him and is set up against him, he loves. Is that not profound? Is that not amazing? And the need for God's grace is every day. Look at the pages of history. Look at some of our old hymn writers, right? I mean, we, we think that some people think, oh, this gospel-centered theology is like new news for today. I mean, you read some of the hymn writers who were just, they knew, like, we don't love God as we should. We don't love others as we should. We don't live as we should as saved people. It's like Paul crying out, who's going to rescue us from this body of death? And who is that? One of the famous hymns, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. This has been an angst throughout all of history for all of believers. But as you look at all these hymns, they point back to the perfect son, Jesus Christ, who will always ground us. And I know that some of us have a difficulty maybe experiencing freedom. And I know that there are some in this room that need freedom in Christ. That there are some in this room that have embraced the lies of this world. You don't have freedom. And what I wanted to do was just show you a clip. I'm praying that it would really minister to me this week, and I'm praying that it would minister to you. I'm just praying that one of the central things that you'll just grab from this is the great love the Father has for you and that he is worthy to be surrendered to. Get saved, because then you won't. And I got saved and kept on doing. So then where am I supposed to go? Because apparently Jesus doesn't work for me. He goes, oh, no, 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 we'll, we'll work through this. But I'm not letting you go in the meantime. Oh, we'll get there. I'll finish it. I started it. I'll be faithful to finish. Don't give up. Keep walking, keep pressing in, keep confessing, but don't give up. I'll heal you. I won't let you go. There is no one who can condemn you. I don't, and if I don't, no one can. Who will even bring a charge against you? Your mind. What court could they possibly charge you in? Everything's mine. He is jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me And oh, how he loves us Oh, oh, how he loves us How he loves us 
that God in eternity looked upon me, foreseeing my fallenness, my pride, my sin, and said, I want that man in my family. I'll do anything to get him in my family. I will pay for him to be in my family with my son's life. That's love, folks. That is mega, off-the-charts love. Jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Building me The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. That, that's why. We've got this weird compartmentalization thing that happens where you don't think that God sees all that you are or that if he could have somehow knew who you were going to be, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Um, listen, God knew you were going to be messy. Uh, Christ knew that you were going to be messy. God, God knows that you're going to screw up often. He knows that you're going to be drawn to things that are wicked. He knows that's what the cross is all about. It's the whole point of the cross is that you're going to fail and you're going to stumble and you're going to feel dirty and you're going to feel awkward. And you're going to, the whole point of the cross of Christ is there be this mighty picture of his love and pursuit of you despite you. So the cross is necessary because of you, but it's also the picture we have of just how far God is willing to go because he loves you. I'm not bitter against the church. I just think somehow we've got off and there's all this talk about morality and people are conforming themselves to these moral codes, but they don't know Jesus. Who cares? It's the resurrection of Christ that justifies. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so big. It proves that all the wrath of God was poured out. It's gone. For the elect, it's gone. There is no more wrath. There's, there's none. 
So Jesus sees you and he's like, my son, my daughter, perfect, spotless, blameless. Freedom is a huge thing in the scriptures. Galatians 5.1, we don't have time to get into Galatians, but Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is also one of the central things we see here in, in the book of Galatians is how central the gospel is. Remember, Galatians, the, belie- the, the believers here, they, they, I mean, they were already saved. And what was the problem? The problem was they were beginning to be led astray by a different gospel, a false gospel, a justification by works. And Paul is writing this letter to, to ground them in the reality of the gospel. Like you, don't need to, you don't need to put yourself under bondage anymore. You're free. You are free. In Christ, you are free. 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Are you experiencing freedom? And you need daily the gospel of Jesus. Don't ever, ever think that you outgrow this good news proclamation in your life. Because that's what it literally means. The gospel, it points to a person. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not something that you do like, like, a, like, a, like a checklist. The gospel is something to be proclaimed. It's good news that, it, that is to be shared and proclaimed over your life. So that when, when the enemy tempts to bring shameful things that you've done in the past, when you're preaching the gospel to yourself, you're saying, you know what? Jesus Christ has bore all my shame. I no longer need to be ashamed. When you're battling with that need for people approval or just seeking the acceptance of people and it's just driving you and you're tired and weary, you just put your feet down on the gospel promise that Ephesians 1 tells us that we're sealed, we're, we're of the beloved, we're, we're, we're sons and daughters of the king and that's our identity. I don't, I don't need to work for that anymore. We need the gospel. This is what, because Jesus is pointing us back to himself, the truth will set you free. And so many of us, we, we live in fear or we live in bondage to the things. We don't, maybe we think that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And I can tell you, I, I live so long in that, uh, in that understanding of like, you know what, Jesus, I just want, your, I just want the freedom that comes for you, but I, 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 don't want, I, don't want, I don't want to give my whole life to you. And because of that mentality, I mean, I, I look at my wife back there, and, you know, Joshua um, had the, uh, God had Joshua set up memorial stones so that um, they would be reminded that it was God that delivered them. And, you know, a picture of God's grace in my life is my wife. Because had it been up to my own vices within the first two years of our, of our marriage, I would have tanked it. 
was not in a good place. And my heart breaks for those that have ever struggled with depression. I mean, for those of you that have ever been depressed, and there's some of you that understand, it's, just, it's, it's a feeling of hopelessness, right? It's this feeling that you can't escape, that, you know what, there's nothing good that's going to happen. And it just begins to tear you apart. And the channel in which I experience the lavish grace of God is through surrender. When I genuinely came to the end of myself and said, I can't do this. I cannot, Lord. I cannot. And that's why his grace is sufficient, that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And some of you need to acknowledge that. That this blessing of freedom, it it comes through surrender. It comes through saying, Lord Jesus, there is not an inch of my life in which you do not have say or control over. Anything, Jesus. I don't care what person I marry, what school I go to, how I do my job. I mean, everything, Lord. How I drive my car, how I, how I, just everything, Lord Jesus. You're Lord over that. And it doesn't mean that it's fleshed out perfectly right away. For those of you that have been following the Lord Jesus, you know that it's been a journey of experiencing freedom and victory in areas of your life, right? Because even though we experience freedom, there's some areas of our life where we're kind of just still clinging to. And through the work of his spirit, he reveals, okay, we're going to deal with this one now. And you and I both know that it comes through that channel of surrender. It comes through the channel of clinging to a gospel truth. So what do you need to cling to? What truth claim of the gospel do you need to cling to? Where do you need freedom? And you know what? The beautiful thing about this is that it's my prayer that this would also be fleshed out in the context of biblical community. So often, you and I, we look for, and I'm not just talking about our life group ministry. I'm just talking about biblical pockets of community. We're looking for communities where people are like us. They talk like us. They act like us. Or, you know what? And and you know what? That's so not heavenly minded. Because when you read Revelation, you know what it's going to look like? It's going to be so diverse. Every tribe, every tongue. I mean, there's going to be just different languages and, and different, you know, just, it, it's going to be a, a just beautiful diversity. And I pray that this, that, that you would also experience freedom through community and where you're able to come to a place and you're able to live out the realities of the church in the context of community, whether it's the confession of sin, I mean, just the, the prayer, the, the bearing with one another. That's part of, I believe, experiencing freedom because God has made us not to be isolated individuals, but God made us to reflect him who himself, the triune God, is a community. Amen? So if you would uh, pray with me. I just wanted us to spend some time in prayer here. I think so often just the busyness of life, we don't at times just even make time to just sit quiet in the presence of the Lord. And this is a beautiful thing because as we're in this corporate context, we are the church. And together, I mean, this is the place where the Spirit of God dwells, not in this building, but among believers here gathered corporately. I just want us to spend some moments in prayer.
you have a hard time thinking of something, remember the famous psalm that says, be still and know that I am God. When was the last time that we just stopped and acknowledged God for who he is? we could also just spend a few moments here also just treasuring Jesus. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That word abide, it means to habitually remain, to make a dwelling. It's really that, as as John is talking about, this genuine saving faith. It's almost like you know you have genuine saving faith. If abiding in Jesus brings you life and joy, that the words of Christ just, just stir you up. And I ask you that, this, do the words of Jesus stir you up? We are to, honestly, our, our attitude and demeanor is to be one of, of, of a bride waiting for her bridegroom, that when we hear the bridegroom's voice, we, we get excited. That's Jesus and the church. So as you hear the words of Jesus and as you dwell upon your Savior, does it generate this excitement in you? And if not, just spend some time repenting and saying, Lord Jesus, sorry that I don't treasure you as I should. And that I long to, I long to, Lord, and just burden me the, 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 just the desire to see you for who you are. in prayer, I just want to challenge you with one thing is please get connected to another believer in which you can begin to flesh out this freedom or just do life with, even if it's just one or two. We need brothers and sisters in our lives where we can confess sin, where we can just share our hearts openly where we can be ministered to as well as ministered to. 
And you'll be amazed at how God brings freedom in that as well. Because God wants to bring freedom in the context of the local body of the church. So, Father, I just thank you for your word, your word, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I thank you that every day as, as people we have the perfect Savior to look to, God. And that he has died the most gruesome death. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And in him is life and freedom. And I'm praying for that reality right now in the life of our church here. Father God, I want to pray for the the marriages here in this church. And know that um, there are just some marriages that are not doing well, God. And you know them. And I want to pray right now for freedom in those marriages, God. And I want to pray that that freedom would come through the channel of surrender and that I pray for the husband first. I pray that the husband would surrender his pride, surrender his way of doing things, acknowledge that by flesh alone that he can't love his bride as Christ loved and died for the church, that he can't wash his bride with the water of his word. As Jesus, you wash your bride with the water of your word. That it can only be done through a spirit-powered, filled man. And I'm praying that. I'm praying for those husbands to surrender. And no longer they would, uh, no longer they would make any excuses, but instead they would just genuinely come to your feet and surrender. And that you would bring great freedom to them that you would not hold past guilt or past failures against them, Lord. Because if you did that to any of us, who could stand? Father, I pray for the wives too. I pray that also that their freedom would, would come through their surrender, the surrender to the way you do things, God. That they would surrender first and foremost to you, Jesus, that, and then secondly, that they would submit to their husbands. And I'm praying that you would bring great freedom and healing to these marriages, God. We need to begin praying in faith, God. Forgive me, Lord, for my lack of faith at times. But, Lord, I know that through you all things are possible, and I pray for that. Father, I pray for um, those who think that um, they don't need freedom or they're free already. I pray you would break them, God. Father, I don't see any human on this planet like the Pharisees. I don't know many people that memorized uh, the Pentateuch, Lord, the first five books of the Bible, Lord, who made it their life's purpose to... To, to just follow these lists of rules rigidly and with a passion. And Father, if justification could be earned by, by observance of the law, Lord, they would be the people in. But you've definitely shown us that there's nothing we can do, that our deeds are like filthy rags. And I pray that you would just, if there, if there are those that are, just feel that they, they, don't, they don't need this freedom, I pray you break them, God. I pray you would show them that whatever works they attain to I mean, it's just, it's nothing but unrighteousness. And they need the righteousness that comes through the cross. Father, I pray for those that are struggling through, through people-pleasing, as well as through winning the approval of others. Father, I know that's many of us. I know that's me, Lord. 
Father, maybe it's because we had, you know, the, the, the way our parents were and, you know, their, their mood tempered upon the way we performed, that when we did good things, we, we got a good job, son or daughter, and when we did bad things, we, we just felt like utter failures. But Father, I thank you that it's through the cross that we have freedom, that we are sons and daughters of the King, and that we don't need to perform. We don't need to, to uh, you know, to dance around and, to, and to, to juggle all these different balls. No, we just need to, to bask in what Jesus has done. And Father, I'm praying for freedom there. Father, I pray for those of us that have deep pains in our life, Lord. Maybe in our upbringing, God, we ex- we've just been through painful circumstances. I'm praying for genuine freedom, Lord, that there would be no more enslavement to the people of our past or the things of our past, God. I pray against shame, freedom from shame. Father, Lord, that for those of us that have been shamed for what we've done in the past, God, because, Lord, I know I'm so, I'm so shamed of many of the things I've done in the past, Lord. But, Lord... When we look to you, freedom comes because we look to the cross and we remember that, Jesus, you took all of our shame. So I'm praying that you would just, just clothe those that, that need just that, that genuine this robes of righteousness and love. Father, I just thank you for freedom, God. God, I just pray that people would be liberated, Lord, and would just be walking and surrender to you. Tim Keller has a famous quote, and it reads, the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. So we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. Thank you, Jesus, for freedom. In Christ's name I pray, amen.